to episode 15 of Mike Dicta, America's best named legal podcast. I am your host, Charles Starr. Uh, with me today, uh, we've got uh, all returning guests, which is probably how it's going to be forever. Uh, everyone say hello to Peter. Hey. And Rhiannon. Hey, everybody. And John. Hello, everyone. Uh, busy, busy, uh, what has it been, six months uh, <laughs> since episode 14? <laughs> uh, Decades. So, so a lot a lot has happened. Uh, immigration, a lot of immigration stuff going on from the, from the people being separated at the border, whether they're here seeking asylum or otherwise uh, trying to enter the country and uh, then getting lost uh, because I guess someone lost their notes. At uh, at INS, they've lost like fifteen hundred kids. They've also done some other sort of really aggressive policy stuff. Um, the the one the one that was pointed out to me is that uh, Jeff Sessions, as Attorney General, has essentially ordered immigration judges uh, to to stop cleaning up their dockets, essentially. He has taken away from immigration judges the right to administratively close cases, uh, which is one of the things they did because they had like a massive backlog. And the rule basically was that low priority cases uh, for a variety of reasons would just get closed by the administration judge uh, in a kind of holding pattern. Uh, and then if anyone wanted to revive them, uh, they could like the, you know, the uh, ice or the predecessor INS could just, you know, say, Oh, we want to redo this case. Uh, we want to get it going again. And that's what they would do. And sessions was like, I don't know where you think you found that, uh, where you got that right. Uh, it doesn't appear to be in any of the statutes and I'm taking it away and you may no longer administratively close cases. You just have to sort of see them through, uh, which uh, was not great for being, like a lot more people are going to end up getting processed instead of kind of released on their own recognizance while INS deals or ICE, excuse me, deals with the backlog. This This is so typical of how immigration law practically functions it's always this kafka-esque thing where you you know it's administrative closure so you're sort of okay but at any moment your case could be reopened and, and you know you could be at risk of, of being deported again and i think um, we're going to talk about someone who you know is under daca is a dreamer it's kind of the same you know vague not based in statute not not it doesn't have the clear basis in statute or regulation that that makes people you know terrified all the time i mean it's funny because the administrative closure i think for the longest time worked very well uh for the person uh who they were trying to remove or at least were considering removing because the backlog was big and things would just get in a holding pattern and the government and the and the uh defendant would essentially agree to just administratively close the case. And it was kind of, I don't know, like, I don't know that this is officially the case, but it really seemed like kind of a wink between 
ICE and the defendants where they're like, you're low risk, you're not a deportation priority, we have a huge backlog, so we'll deal with those before we deal with you. And uh, should you pop up on our radar for any reason, we can reopen it. But for now, you know, as you were, and they would just release them. And that uh, that's just not going to happen anymore, though. I think it's I think it's an interesting case that it came up because like the the way he did it. Right. They didn't have a new rulemaking. He just did it as part of an adjudication of one guy's case. Right. Uh, the I don't know. I don't you know, I didn't even catch the first name anywhere in the decision, but it's just called Matter of Castro Tomb, which I think is the guy's last name. And it's like it's just not a good case for the defendant because the the administrative closure seems a little dubious. Right. He gave an address. He was a minor when he entered the country. Barely so. He was, a, you know, he was, you know, 17, just shy of his 18th birthday. But he enters the country as a minor. They release him to an to a relative. He gives the relative's address and they release him to the custody of the relative. And then every time they notice him of a new hearing, he just ignores it. Right. He doesn't change his address. They send it to the address where he's apparently living and he just goes off the radar and stops responding to the notices. Yeah, the dude's cool as shit. There's no doubt. (laughs) Powerful man. That's right. That's right. But what is what is even funnier is at a certain point, ICE basically tries people in absentia. If you ref- if if they notify you where you tell them you're supposed to be notified and you keep blowing off the notices, in general, they will just try you in absentia. You will lose and then there'll be a deportation order on you. And the next time you run into ICE or any kind of trouble, you're going to be fast tracked out of the country. But the ALJ here, after getting blown off multiple times, just decides to administratively close the case. Right. Because the. At a certain point, the ALJs, they used to administratively close cases when everyone agreed to it, right? ICE agreed to it, and the defendant was more than happy to agree to it because they were probably going to lose if it goes to a hearing. And so they just cleared off the docket by closing it. But in this case, like at a certain point, the ALJs decided that they could administratively close cases over the objections of ICE. (laughs) And in this case, I'm sure ICE was like, when he entered the country, he told us this is where he was living. When he came for his first hearing, he told us he was still living there. And now he just keeps throwing our notices in the garbage. You can't close this case. (laughs) But the ALJ did it anyway. And then it got to Sessions and he's like, "Okay, look, guys, I know you think you have these precedents, but none of them count. This is the precedent now. You can't close cases like this. It's it's hard to argue on the merits, except for the fact that the ALJs seem to have been doing this just because there are so many cases 
right? And if you're and if your deportation priority is people who have committed crimes or who are danger or who have violated previous deportation orders or whatever sort of sane priorities they are, it's not what case is in front of me right now. And I think ALJs essentially took it upon themselves to prioritize cases. And this is just sort of not one that would have otherwise been a high priority case. Um, I think it's, it's pretty common in general uh, across administrative agencies that, they, that there are powers like this where unlike in a, in a court setting, they can just sort of toss it for no reason. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I see it in a lot of uh, in a lot of employment cases. It's just an authority that's fairly common. And obviously, in, in a situation like this, maybe a questionable <laughs> deployment of that authority. But I think there's no question that it's, it's a common uh, it's a common power. It's not something that's sort of weird or out of line. Totally. And I think yeah. you also see that this is how the sort the system kind of has, has to work when um, when the system is so overburdened, when people are, you know, when they're when they get picked up by ICE, if they do bond out and their their case is still pending, people are getting their cases set three, four, sometimes five years down the line. Um, so it's kind of a it's it's, it's a necessary sort of discretionary tool. Isn't the practical effect of essentially now going forward that it's not retroactive, which I'm sure the, the ALJs appreciate, but going forward, the dockets are going to be so much more crowded. Wouldn't the practical effect of that be that, like Rhiannon said, but even more cases, you know, hearing dates are going to be pushed back from how it currently is, you know, years to six, seven, eight, nine years, which sort of has a similar effect as the administrative closure and that these people are sort of in limbo. I think that is kind of how a lot of it is going to go. I think once they take away the fact that ALJs said to themselves that they could administratively close cases over uh, the objections of one of the parties was probably a bit farther than they should have gone. You know, like if if ICE is ready to move forward on the case and they can demonstrate you know, that it should move forward. Uh, I don't think that just closing the case in their face <laughs> is like probably it's probably a bit it's probably a bit bolder than they should have been. And so I think in general, what you'll end up with is once the backlog starts again, like John said, Sessions was smart enough because there are like hundreds of thousands of these cases pending. And he was smart enough not to, not to say all 300,000 cases have to go forward now. But the stuff that like it's just a going forward order, they can't keep doing it. And so as the backlog, uh, as the backlog intensifies, you'll probably just see agreed upon administrative closures, you know, like they'll either they'll either pick a date, they'll either adjourn all the way out in the future. Right. Which Sessions basically said it's within their authority to adjourn cases. They just can't close them. And so what I think you'll see a lot more of is long term adjournments, which have a similar effect. But I think I think one of the problems was administrative closures uh, just created like a huge, essentially a paperwork burden on the government where they had to remember to reopen the case. 
And they just wouldn't. They would just throw it in like the into the later pile and it would never leave the later pile, which is which is good if you don't want your case heard because you're essentially in the system, but not necessarily deportable. And so you can just wait out the government's backlog and incompetence while staying in the country. Um but, you know, he's just moved it to a system where you have to more actively adjourn. And I think actually of the two things that finally pissed him off beyond belief, one of them was the ALJ's closing cases over the objections of uh, of ICE. And the second one was when ICE tried to reopen cases, there became <laughs> they set up a body of law where ICE had to demonstrate a change in circumstance justifying the reopening of the case. And I think that was like a bridge too far because he's like the circumstances that they're in the country in a disputed circumstance and we can resolve that dispute whenever we want. And so I think he got upset at that kind of arrogation of power to the ALJ too. And so as the attorney general, he kind of dialed that back. You know, so, I mean, it's what's crazy is that, like, a lot of it is not really unreasonable from a legal sense. And I'm not sure how much it's going to affect things in a practical sense, because I think the ALJs are going to be effectively just as overburdened and just as likely to look for a workaround. But it says a lot about what his priorities are, that he wanted to completely, uh, you know, punish the ALJs for stepping out of line. Here. Right. It's, it's probably not like a terrible development for uh, undocumented people in the country, uh, but it does go to show that they are going to just throw every uh, procedural mechanism they can at this issue. It's, it's, yeah. it's obviously the administration's number one priority. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're going to make life as nightmarish as possible for undocumented folks in the country for as long as they can. And that's, it's, even if it's a small step in that direction, that's what he's trying but, to do. But is there an effect in terms of, and, and I, I don't know immigration law well enough to know this, but the difference between an adjournment and an administrative closure in terms of, you know, ability to apply for a work authorization, or if somebody's being detained, I, I, I don't, I don't know exactly how that works, but is there, you know, is that a meaningful difference in, in any sense? Or is it like Charles said, is it, is it truly just sort of has a, the same effect more or less? I don't know. I mean, I think most of the people who are in this situation wouldn't have had uh, work visas or green cards or anything like that. I mean, I think I think all of the people in this situation are kind of off the grid in that sense. Anyway, I'm not entirely sure that that's true. But that is definitely my sense of mm-hmm. this, is that, mm-hmm. you know. And I would think there were there couldn't be uh, too many negative consequences flowing from them until there was a finding of some sort uh, that could be, uh, you, you know, used to justify some sort of consequence. Right. I mean, I think it's bad if you are in ICE detention, right? To the extent that you are not out on your own recognizance pending hearing, then it would definitely be very bad. But for but for those who are in detention, obviously, any kind of 
uh, semi-permanent delay is bad, though those are probably the people more likely to want to move their cases forward. Like if you think you have a limited chance of success and you can't get yourself bonded out, you may prefer, if it's not an asylum case, you may prefer to actually just get yourself deported rather than sit in ICE detention right, for years right. waiting for your case to come up. Um, but he also he also seemed to like go out of his way uh, to re to like to decide this question. Like he didn't even necessarily have to do it. Uh, he could have resolved it like other ways, but he just sort of took it to himself and he just sort of knocked back their power. Oh, another another thing that I think he didn't like was that the immigration judge in this case said that he didn't think that the uh, that the address on record uh, he didn't consider them reliable. <laughs> and it's like it was the address that the guy gave to INS. INS didn't make it up. And so it's like the I, I think the I think the ALJs probably went a bit too far just trying to grab uh, any reason to kick cases off their off their dockets. And, uh, you know, so like I'm sympathetic to them and I'm like I I consider them heroes. <laughs> But but heroes, heroes who uh, probably could not uh, probably could not uh, last too long well, on that path. All lawyers are heroes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, the, the other case I wanted to bring up, uh, which kind of goes to the same thing about showing the background of what this administration is like and how they treat these kind of cases is Ramirez Medina, uh, which is a case that came out of. Uh, that came out of uh, Western District of Washington's that Seattle federal court on uh, on mandamus or habeas, but it basically was a preliminary injunction case. Basically, he was picked up. He was a dreamer. He was in this country legally. He had a work permit, and he was a, he was legally in the country under DACA, right? And his father. Uh, was not in the country legally, which is why he was a dreamer. Uh, and when they came to pick up his father, they just arrested him too. And when he said he was a dreamer, they basically were like tough shit. And they just interrogated him forever, essentially about a gang tattoo. Uh, or what well, they said was not, a gang tattoo. Not, not a, a gang affirm tattoo. Affirmatively not a gang tattoo. A regular tattoo that they tried to say was a gang tattoo just as a way of violating his DACA status so they could kick him out of the country. Right. So you can and, you can get people tossed out of the country if even if they're under DACA if they have been like involved in gang activity. Uh, and the tattoo said it was just the name of the town he was born in in Mexico. And I think... Uh, the name of the region that it was in. Yeah, Baja, was California, Sur. Right. So uh, they, there was like an expert who said that he's never, never in his life seen any sort of gang tattoo like this. <laughs> uh, and that was like their whole base. And, and the other, the, the other part of their argument was that that when they were like, "Hey, we're going to toss you into into jail. Uh, any gangs you want to avoid?" Uh, and he said, "No." I'm not in a gang, but um, I think he used the term uh, I would like to be around my, my paisas, like which is just a sh shorthand for paisanos, which is like my countrymen. He's saying Mexicans. You know, I think he probably understood that, that 
uh, jail is divided to a degree along racial lines. And he was like, you know, put, put me with the Mexicans, I guess. And uh, and they that was enough. That It was that and the tattoo. That's the only basis they have to say that this dude was in a gang. Uh, well, yeah, I hate these fucking pigs, guys. <laughs> well, and listen, those gang experts think everything is gang affiliation, is confirmation of gang affiliation. I mean, like, you know, your clothes, your haircut, the, um, you know, the type of language or the slang that you use, all of that stuff. So if that guy was saying, nah, this tattoo doesn't mean anything except what it says it means, which is where he's from, um, then this kid was for sure just like an angel. Yeah, I mean, what they said he like he was from uh, he was from, I think, Washington. I'm, I'm going to get this backwards, but he was I think he was in Washington and there were gangs where he was and he like was in when he was in high school he had like there was just a lot of gang shit going on and so he left <laughs> like he left right. the city to get away from all of the gangs and w- they went home to like where his family was just so i guess maybe wherever he was there were gangs he went home where there were no gangs and they pick him up and when he and the way it reads right he says i want to be with um my, with Paisa, apparently there was a gang of that name. <laughs> like, it seems like there was a crew that used that name. And so it, it's like, just that is like real Kafkaesque stuff. It's for them to be like, aha, this is the gang you're with. But again, it was just like a, it was just like a compass tattoo that had the name of his hometown. And so like nothing at all. And the thing is, it went before an immigration judge. And the immigration judge ruled in his favor, right? So he won. And that should have been the end of it, except they didn't let him out. And then they just issued a second deportation notice. Like two, like some of this is like kind of just confusing to follow, but they just sent like an additional notice of action letter or something, which apparently invalidated both the immigration judge's decision and the initial DACA finding, which also, when he was designated a dreamer in the first place, the first group of people also determined that he had no gang affiliation. So it's like one after another after another, people just find that he is not gang affiliated, and the people at ICE just shrug their shoulders and go, well, it's gang affiliated to me. Right. And so they kept trying to kick him out. It's not like he developed a gang affiliation. They're, they're saying he's always been in a gang. It's like, well, you you just ran background checks like two years ago, guys. What are you talking about? And the, the, the court latched onto that. Like, by the way, you, this is, you're kind of changing your mind here, right? Right. And I think that's what the district court see, is um, so angry about. Is they say that even if, even if a power, um, a decision-making power is discretionary, it has to reflect some sort of reason decision-making though. So you can't just send a notice that says, here's a new deportation order and your, your dreamer status is, is null and void now because we sent this order and because we said so. Based on, based on a gang affiliation that they can't convince anyone else. Exactly. Exists. I, when, when I heard that, you know, Paisa, which basically, you know, means like countrymen and, and, 
in Spanish or with regard to uh, Mexican people. I was just imagining, uh, you know, old Italian mob guys, you know, who call each other Paisan, imagining the, you know, the gang unit of the FBI being like, there's this huge gang called, you know, the Paisan that's it's in every city, Italian people uh, in every city in the country. It's, it's you know, the super mafia. I, I mean, it's, it's crazy. My boys, they yeah. call themselves my boys. <laughs> Right. And I mean, just anecdotally, in the wake of this case, I've, you know, I've just seen people talking about the fact that this has become fairly routine uh, in ICE, that when they want to hold someone, they just assert a gang affiliation. Because once you've asserted a gang affiliation, that person is not going to get bonded out or released pending any kind of review. And so it's just a way of keeping people from getting released by the administration administrative judge in the first place, which is, uh, needless to say, hugely problematic. Um, I mean, this is all this is all in like the shadow of Trump's what was then campaign rhetoric and now just his administration's mm -hmm. position. Uh, you know, he, he spent all of last week calling people from MS-13 animals uh, in a in a context it might make a reasonable person think that maybe he wasn't just referring to people in MS-13, but yeah. perhaps a broader ethnic group. Uh, and, you know, the his whole pitch and what de his defenders of the conservative position on immigration have always been been saying is, you know, we're not we're not we're going to target criminals. Uh, and, you know, that that'll always be the priority. That's the real concern that like criminals. People without background checks or whatever can slip across the border and wreak havoc here. And uh, obviously, obviously, I mean, I think you don't need to be a genius to figure out just on its face that that's bullshit. But it's obviously bullshit when they are painting criminal records onto like the nicest boys in the world. I mean, this kid, this <laughs> right. kid is like a stellar record. Uh, you know, no, no criminal record. Every frat boy I've ever met has a more, uh, more. Uh, has a worse criminal record than this dude. Uh, and they're saying he's gang affiliated. They obviously know that he's not. I don't think they're this this stupid. I think they know exactly what they're doing. They just want a reason to kick him out, which means that someone from on high told them to do this. It's it's a policy, right? And it's coming down right. from to some degree from someone in the Trump administration. Why it is so hard for uh, people entering the country is because ICE and Homeland Security have such broad authority at the border to do anything. And like last week, uh, uh, the 11th Circuit handed down like what would in other uh, in other eras be considered a sort of really insane case. But what they found, the 11th Circuit decided that when you reenter the country, Homeland Security, border, uh, whatever, has the right to search all of your electronic devices with no reasonable suspicion necessary. Right. And the case like it's one of these cases where like the defendant is insanely unsympathetic uh, because and it's like it's always really easy to 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 introduce really terrible rules when the defendant is such a piece of shit. <laughs> but in this case, uh, it was a guy entering the country uh, with child pornography on his computer. 
And so, you know, he's stopped at the border. They seize his devices to look at them. They take their time. They find child pornography on all of them. He pleads guilty with the one reservation of rights to be able to appeal the search itself because there was no reasonable suspicion uh, to search his devices. And the 11th Circuit finds that it was unnecessary, right? That the, that the, the border, the rights at the border are essentially zero and they can search your devices with full discretion, uh, with, you know, like with no limitation. Yeah. And just to give a little bit of background. So the courts have previously found that you don't need, um, a probable cause to search. So just the, the, the standards are kind of stacked a little bit. So probable cause is what law enforcement needs to search, um, to, you know, to fully do a search, say, of your person or um, of your car. Um, and um, recently, I think the case is um, Riley, the United States uh, Supreme Court decided that um, or held that you have to have law enforcement has to have a warrant, which means that they have to have probable cause to search your um, to search your cell phone. So your kind of electronic devi- devices. Um, the courts, though, prior to this case that we're discussing now, said that they don't need probable cause to to um, to search. So they don't need to take the time to go and get a warrant. But the, the lower standard of reasonable suspicion, which is, you know, the standard that, um, say, law enforcement needs to stop you to pull you over um you have to have reasonable suspicion that some crime um has or is occurring um that still needed to be um needed to be found but this case now says you don't even need reasonable suspicion to um to search somebody's electronic devices somebody who's coming in um coming into the country yeah and i think what was crazy about this case is they didn't even need to make that decision because right. they very easily had reasonable suspicion. Right. We talked, we talked on episode 14 about uh, Michael Cohen and the suspicious activity reports, which is basically like when, when transactions of a certain size pass through a bank, the bank has to fill out paperwork and send it to treasury or whoever uh, saying, you know, this transaction happened, it triggered this in our systems. And so here's a suspicious activity report and uh, some third party payment device that I'd never heard of called Zoom, X-O-O-M, also has uh, the same kind of reporting requirements. And apparently one of the triggers in that payment system is small payments to certain countries which are known for distributing child pornography. And so they had gotten a hit on this guy already. And so like a year and a half ago, this guy was in the system as a potential consumer of child pornography. So when he entered the country, they actually did have reasonable suspicion to search his computer in the first place. And the 11th Circuit actually included that as an alternate holding. So they said, number one, as a rule, you don't need reasonable suspicion for a border search of electronic devices at all. The border is a zone of limited constitutional rights. And so you don't need the, you know, law enforcement doesn't need any standard Uh, They can just take a look. But if a higher court disagrees with that, it doesn't matter in this particular case 
because there clearly was reasonable suspicion because of this child pornography purchase trigger from your from this third party payment system, uh, which is just a terrible way to write constitutional opinions. Right. Yeah. Right. In fact, in fact, perhaps perhaps an unconstitutional way to write. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just it's just ill advised. I mean, the usually what you want to do in a constitutional holding is write the most limited holding that the facts will allow. Mm. Because, you know, a more squarely on point case may come up for the general rule. And so because this guy failed the reasonable suspicion standard, they didn't have to announce a constitutional rule. They could have said whether or not reasonable suspicion is required, reasonable suspicion was here. And so the search was good and we won't even reach the broader constitutional question. And I think the worst thing about this is the alternate holding essentially immunizes this case from appeal, right? right? The Supreme Court will never grant cert in this case because the holding is irrelevant, even if they don't think that even if they do think reasonable suspicion is required, this isn't the case that they would take to reach that. And so as far as the 11th Circuit is concerned, this holding is just going to sit out there for a while because the Supreme Court won't take a case when the alternate finding means that the result won't change even if they change the rule. I think it's, it's more than ill-advised to confront the constitutional question in these cases. It's basically ignoring the directives of the Supreme Court uh, and the whole doctrine of constitutional avoidance, which is basically – you ignore the constitutional question when you can, when it doesn't, when it's not, um, when it's not necessary to, to dispose of the case. It was clearly not necessary there. They basically concede that it wasn't necessary. It was very obvious that they just want, they just wanted to tackle this um, yeah. sort of sort of bizarre and pretty 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 out of you know. It's not it's not like it, it's going to nullify the decision, but it's it's pretty out of line. Yeah. Though constitutional avoidance is always a very funny doctrine because constitutional avoidance is something that only the dissent ever complains about. Right. Right. <laughs> like like the, the Supreme Court graveyard is littered with opinions right. Right. of <laughs> of the majority reaching a decision that a dissent that doesn't like the result will find a way to argue that they never should have reached in the first place. But this is a pretty on point example uh, to set in the uh, or to say in the 11th Circuit was this was an easily avoidable constitutional question. Uh, and there was one there was one concurrence. Right. I mean, there was a district court judge sitting by assignment on this case and he wrote two paragraphs where he's like, I join in everything except for your completely unnecessary constitutional right. opinion, because reasonable suspicion should be required. And whether or not it is, uh, it was certainly here. They certainly had reason to suspect him and to search his computers. The, the only thing that they do say 
is I think this came, this was a Fourth Circuit case not too long ago, is they can search your computer, but they can't go further than that. Like they can't, they can search the device itself, but they can't make you like give passwords and search your social media and like go into your Dropbox or anything like that. Like all of that they need a warrant for, but to get the files on the device itself, they can actually search the device at the border when you're coming in. Yeah. You know, it's, it's irrelevant to me though, because I've got the iPhone X, but they just have to hold it up to my dumbass face. And <laughs> then they'll be looking at my porn in no time. My regular porn. Yeah. Yeah. You, thank you for the clarification. Ooh. Uh, this is, we were about to start episode 15 over again with a new cast. <laughs> Um, as Peter announces that he's never crossing a border again. Topic two uh, is uh, is about the First Amendment. Basically, it is tangentially related to foreign policy, but uh, there are 23 states now, 23 states across the country have passed one form of uh, anti-BDS uh, legislation or another uh, stopping which which essentially makes it illegal to do business with the state if you don't, uh, in the simplest version, if you don't certify that you are not participating in a boycott of Israel. Uh, right. There are two big active cases that I'm aware of, uh, the first being in the District of Kansas, a case called Kuntz, which actually has a resolution uh, or at least a district court resolution. Uh, and uh, the Mikkel Jordahl case uh, in uh, in Arizona, which is a uh, pending resolution. The papers have been submitted on the state's motion to dismiss. Uh, in the first instance, this is not particularly legal, but uh, Michael Jordahl, the plaintiff, uh, sounds like uh, a a guy in a bootleg NBA all-star <laughs> video game. Uh, that uh, was a very surprising name to see. But his uh, his case, I will say this, Arizona has better uh, lawyers than Kansas does uh, because Kansas's case was really straightforward. Uh, she was a teacher who was certified to do teacher trainings, uh, a Mennonite and a member of some activist groups who had endorsed BDS. And so she refused to certify that she was uh, not participating in a boycott. And Kansas essentially uh, didn't do anything except say she didn't ask for a waiver, which we might have given her. And the court was just like, that's not enough. This is a clear, this is a clear First Amendment violation for you to make her certify to this on purely political grounds. Yeah, I, I mean, the the only thing I have to say about that is that, so first of all, it's the, the court kind of bizarrely mentions that the uh, that the state didn't bring up the constitutionality of the law in briefing. 
and they only <laughs> right. they, they only mentioned it at oral argument. Uh, and uh, at oral argument, yeah, they actually they bring up definitely like, a whoopsie. <laughs> yeah, it's like a real quick. Like, you know, you're getting sued on First Amendment grounds and you totally space on the Constitution section. I've been there. Uh, I'm not I'm not a good lawyer either. So I, I empathize. Um, I put in my application to work for Kansas right away. This is following on the heels of uh, Chris Kobach representing himself and screwing up all of his voter ID stuff. This is <laughs> like right. that is uh, the can- Kansas is where the law goes to die. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shitty state. Uh, there's no way around it. Yeah, and just to make just to make clear that the the really, I mean, part one um, of the of the test to show whether or not something is like um, unconstitutional on First Amendment grounds. So the plaintiff has to show that the First Amendment protects the conduct that led to the state denying that contractual benefit. So, I mean, obviously, the, the constitutionality of all of of the um, of the law of the House bill in Kansas, the constitutionality of the um, conduct that the law seeks to prohibit, um, that, that should be really front and center in um, what Kansas is talking about. But oopsie, like Charles said. Yeah, they just, they just sort of blew it off. They just blew it off completely. I, I found it kind of troubling that um, in, in the Kansas decision, they kind of set up a roadmap for, you know, next time when you do the anti you you know when you do this law here's how you have to set it up i mean kansas was very stupid in the legislative history that they make it very explicitly political in the decision they say you know here are some other grounds that you could have your anti-boycott law be you know if it's purely economic or 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 you know if they're if the rationale is something other than a first amendment violation then you're good to go which is i suspect how the kansas legislature could if they wanted to, you know, try to have round two of this. But they but they can't. And they, but the reason why they can't is because their goal is narrow and political. Right. <laughs> they don't want a broader anti-boycott rule right. because they want other kinds of boycotts potentially to be okay. And so they can't really write around it. Uh they can't really write around it in the same way. I think one of the interesting things, uh in the in one of the footnotes, right the 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 benchmark case, the landmark case here was the NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware, yeah. which was a case um, in I think Mississippi, yeah, yeah. Uh, at around the same time as the Montgomery bus boycott and all of that it was a group a group of activists and African Americans in Mississippi had essentially boycotted collectively white owned businesses yeah. right that was it all white they were just going to you know shop black as the point because until the law changed and so this group of white business owners sued in order to invalidate the boycott and of course they won all the way through the Mississippi <laughs> Supreme Court winning da- winning damages in Mississippi state court for the economic effects of the boycott because these black people who they loathed had stopped shopping at their stores and one of the arguments that was made in, during the course of the legislation is that the boycott was sometimes enforced with violence, which is to say, if someone was caught shopping at a white-owned business, I think someone threw a brick through somebody's window, and there was other there were other in, like isolated instances of intimidation. And one of the things that the court ruled was that oh, like that like occasional. Uh, 
overzealous, shall we say, enforcement of the boycott doesn't invalidate the boycott itself. And I just sort of raise that kind of to see how that necessarily would play uh, in contrast to something like Black Bloc and the way they're prosecuting the J-20 cases, where they're trying to group everybody in by trying to essentially argue around this by saying that like the medics and the lawyers guild people and everyone who kind of surrounds Black Bloc is kind of working to help them and therefore get sort of looped into their conduct and so they can be prosecuted along with anyone else. You know, like I feel like I feel like that kind of broad prosecution is a way of trying to get around this kind of holding, uh, you know, in uh, Claiborne hardware. There is one other thing in here, which is the um, Rumsfeld v. Forum for Academic Rights, I think is the name of the case. The law school academic affair. Yes. Yeah. Rumsfeld versus fair. Um, and yeah, so this is the this is the case that they uh, brought up that Kansas brought up in their defense, uh, which is a pretty shitty Supreme Court case from uh, maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago, uh, where laws, a bunch of law schools sued about a federal law that which said that if you wanted federal funding for your law school, you had to grant military recruiters uh, the equal opportunity to recruit on campus. Uh, relative to non-military recruiters uh, and uh, law schools sued on First Amendment grounds. And the Supreme Court said, no, that is not inherently expressive speech, meaning that you would really have it doesn't send an inherent message. You'd have to clarify why you're doing. Uh, I think it's pretty. Which was what? Which was weird because they clearly clarified why they were doing <laughs> right. it. Right. I mean, and, right. they, and everyone fucking knows why you're doing it. I mean, it's, you, you're not a big fan of the of the military. It's 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 very well, no. Simple it was specific stuff. though. I mean, it was specific. It was because of don't ask, don't tell. Right. They were not allowing. They were not allowing JAG to recruit on campus because don't ask, don't tell was um, anti-homosexual discrimination. That, that's right. And but so you, you don't. I don't think you need to dig that deep for it to be expressive speech. And right, but the Supreme but Court I mean, tried to parse it in like a very in a very fine way. That actually I thought is kind of bad news for uh, the the BDS folks. Uh, well, the, I think the court kind of worked itself around it, but. Not not a good case for people who want to engage in this sort of stuff because it really does give give you all the, give the state all the tools they need to crack down on these sorts of boycotts um, without making it seem like they're doing you know like they're going after expressive speech. Yeah, I mean, the, it was uh, Arizona argued the relevance of of Rumsfeld to be fair. I thought a lot better, mostly because they seem to have argued it coherently. Um, and and as, on paper, which on paper. <laughs> right. it made it it made it into their briefs. But they like it was just sort of very similar. There's a federal law which doesn't allow you to obey boycotts sponsored by a foreign government or at the direction of a foreign government, which is just sort of a weird fit for this because BDS is not really government directed in any way. Right. It's, you know, yeah. And the, the, the feds would then have to recognize Palestine. It's, it's a huge catch 22. <laughs> right. Right. Um, that, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of all over the place 
the though it's the plaintiff in like the plaintiff in Jordal is a guy who uh, does like contracted uh, indigent defense. Basically, he does he repres he represents indigent defense in. Uh, in Arizona, indigent defendants in Arizona, and he has a state contract to do it. And when they renewed the state, when he wanted to renew the state contract, uh, they made him sign an anti-BDS certification. The first year he did it under objection, right? He's like, I'll sign it and I'll obey it. Yeah, he signed the certification. He sent it to the state, but he attached a letter saying, like, FYI, I think this is bullshit. Um, and he reserved his right to challenge um, because he believed it was, and he, which he stated, he believed it was an unconstitutional violation of the First Amendment. So, And then the next year, when it came time to renew, he this time declined to sign it uh, because he said it, like, impinged his activities. He couldn't, he didn't know if he could, uh, he didn't know if he could work with or do pro bono services for the activist group that he's involved with um, that uh, participates in BDS. And, you know, like, I just feel like so much of the, so much of the state's opposition is kind of parsing his personal conduct, you know, cause I guess he was deposed and he's like, well, I don't oppose my BDS is narrower than other people's. Like I wouldn't do business with anyone, any businesses that are in the, in the Palestinian territories, but I wouldn't not do business with anyone in Israel at all to the extent that, you know, whatever. And so like, he has like all of these, you know, sort of personal adaptations of BDS. And so the state's just like, look, it's supposed to be a boycott of Israel and his kind of bespoke boycott isn't what we're looking at anyway. And the harm that he alleges is that <laughs> he bought an eight, like so much of his harm is weird because it's like he couldn't, uh, he couldn't get a better deal, right? He had to, he had to buy an HP printer, even though he would have bought a different printer, except the deals on Hewlett Packard were too good. <laughs> it was like, like there was, it was just very, it was just very strange. And so like, I think Arizona made a lot of hay of the plaintiff himself, but they did get into sort of some interesting cases, one being Rumsfeld v. Fair and, you know, the, the kind of background on, uh, on other, on other federal boycott statutes, which were upheld. You know, and I don't know. I mean, Arizona just did a better job of articulating their cases. Yeah, I think the I think the the way the states kind of shoot themselves in the foot is with the the legislative history and what's on the record as being the reason why people support an anti BDS statute. So, um, you know, there's for the in the Arizona case, there are legislative findings in the act that um, okay, boycotts and related tactics have become a tool of economic warfare. The state of Israel is the most prominent target of such boycott activity. Um, but meanwhile, you know, boycott activity is a constitutionally protected right, obviously. So they're they're sort of being, you know, too explicit um, in their in their legislative history for why they're they're um, doing this and not saying um like John pointed out, um, not not directing this towards permissible goals of just sort of promoting trade relations or, um, you know, suppression of economic competition or something. 
Yeah. Every every time they propose a bill at one of these state legislatures, it starts off with someone like drinking the blood of a Palestinian child. And uh, I mean, like, anyway, I'm going to propose this bill. Uh, and it goes downhill from there. Right. The crowd goes wild. To, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Isn't there? They, I, they, it, they blame Hamas at the end. Right. <laughs> Isn't there in, in one or the other? I don't recall which um, there's there's discussion of whether an, an anti BDS boycott, you know, if, if you were to want to boycott uh, a, a person or an organization that was, you know, that was boycotting Israel, that that would be permitted, which I, I, I think is right. Right. Wild. <laughs> right. They very explicitly say that anti anti BDS right. is fine. Right. Um, like they and so that's sort of problematic. I think there are other interesting things in here. I mean, they both analogize. um BDS to either anti-Semitism in one respect or at least national origin discrimination in another respect as a way of kind of trying to fit it into a civil rights framework itself. They also, I, in one of the, in one of the cases, I just thought this is interesting about how like politics align when they're talking about speech, they make reference to citizens united and they're like, also, clearly, money is speech, right? <laughs> so, like, we couldn't we couldn't stop you from donating to like an anti BDS campaign or something. But all we're regulating is conduct, and so your conduct of participating in a boycott, we definitely are allowed to do. And I thought one of the interesting disputes is that one of the cases uh, that one of the Supreme Court cases that they rely on is a case uh, the Longshoreman. Uh, during the height of anti-Soviet politics, they essentially refused to unload Russia. They boycotted by refusing to unload Russian goods from certain sh from ships coming into port. And, you know, they 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 the companies were like, this is not a valid boycott. It violated some statute or other. And they're like, you can't just discriminate against Russia. And the way the the way Jordal, the way the plaintiff dis distinguishes that case is he's like, that was strictly a labor case. And it fell under all of this, you know, these labor, this labor rubric. And the the way the state responded is they're like, oh, they make this facile distinction by saying that it's labor, it's, you know, based on because it was a union and this is just an individual. But the entire basis of the longshoreman's case was that it was improper concerted labor activity. Right. And so, like, it wasn't really a facile distinction. It was very important to how they distinguished those cases. Um you know, I but I do I do agree with what Peter said before that the the Rumsfeld fair case uh, is going to be a lot of trouble. It's like the best defense that these states have um, because Rumsfeld v. Fair is so stupid <laughs> about how it defines conduct. Yep. Right. Like it clearly was an expressive boycott, but they didn't like the idea of boycotting the military. And so they just they just kicked them off. If we can back up for a second, I have to say the the idea that Kansas state senators are calling uh, BDS anti-Semitic as if anyone in the Kansas legislature has ever met a Jewish person, I, I find it despicable. Um, 
I, I also thought it was funny in the Kansas case, they were like, if we don't have uh, anti-BDS legislation, if we don't make all of our government contractors certify, uh, then the state of Israel may consider us a hostile environment and cease doing business in Kansas. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Uh, to which the judge was like, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, like at least, at least, like, if you, if there were any proof of this, I'm sure you would have submitted it. This, you didn't, and I'm assuming there the, the state of Kansas exports <laughs> 56 million, in 2016, exported $56 million uh, worth of goods to Israel. They made a point of, of pointing that out. You know, that's pro- <clears throat> maybe a lot of money for <clears throat> Kansas. Yeah, they didn't want to lose it. They didn't money. want to lose it. How much was coming out and how much was going in? But yeah, <laughs> um, they. I mean, the other thing, the other thing that they do is they distinguish. Uh, they claim that uh, Jordal is anti BDS. They're trying to pose it as a subsidy, right? That the court doesn't have to grant a benefit to someone who wishes to express a right. But I mean, here, I don't think it's a subsidy so much because they try to distinguish 501c3 and 501c4 right if you want the better tax treatment you can't also be a political advocacy organization which of course is also a bullshit distinction in 2018 but they try to phrase what jordal is doing as being just a subsidy which is a kind of weird way of putting working for the state you know, he either can or can't get a government contract. So it's a really weird place to try to shoehorn in, uh, to try to shoehorn in the, uh, that, that distinction. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting. Also the religious angle, the, the, uh, the Kansas person was a Mennonite. I think the Arizona person was a Lutheran. The Kansas decision addresses it a little bit when they're talking about when the waivers might be granted that there was something like, you know, if, if the person had invoked um, the, their Mennonite beliefs as the reason for the boycott, they would have granted the waiver versus, I, I think the quote was, someone who says, I just don't want to do it, that, you know, they wouldn't grant a waiver in that situation. And it's not, it's not really sort of the, the crux of, of the case, but it is interesting to, to think about, you know, that, that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, well, the Kansas case, like the decision spends a lot of time on doctrines like mootness and ripeness because the way Kansas, because Kansas didn't waste any time uh, briefing constitutional issues, um, (laughs) they, they instead rested mostly on the fact that the Secretary of State try like submitted an affidavit saying that if Kuntz had asked for a waiver, she would have gotten one. Uh, and Kuntz's response to that was, well, I asked if I could have the job without submitting the certification. And the person responsible for handing out the assignment said no. And so that was enough for me to file suit. And the court agreed. But they did. They went through like the mootness and rightness. And one of the things the judge said was, that's all well and good that the secretary of state uh, has said that she would have granted a waiver in this case, but you haven't really, uh, you haven't made it any kind of official policy. You've just put it in this affidavit, which means that this, even if you grant this waiver, the next person in this, like in the same situation, 
has no real guidance on whether they will be able to get a waiver. And so since this kind of issue can keep coming up and you can keep granting waivers right up until the time you decide you don't want to, right, capable of repetition yet evading review is kind of the the language uh, in the Supreme Court case on this, um, because this like it won't it's not moot just because you say you would have granted a waiver. It is ripe, even though she didn't ask for a waiver because she was specifically declined the job opportunity. And it's not moot um, because even if you would have granted a waiver in this case, there's no real binding nature to that specific waiver. And this is an important constitutional issue that could keep coming up. And so, you know, the little bit of legal work that Kansas did was to no avail. Um, anyone have uh, further comments on uh, on either of these cases? Uh, yeah, um, just just that I looked at I was doing some background research on on sort of anti BDS uh, laws generally. And, and they're, you know, they exist outside of the context of of you know, state contracting specifically. Um, it, and, you know, the, they're in, Charles, you said 23 states, um, you know, they cover different things. I was surprised to find, or maybe not su- surprised to find that uh, New York has, one, one of the laws is uh, aims to prohibit public funding of student organizations at, and, and on the website they spelled it pubic, but I think they mean public universities in New York. Uh, the student organization advocates for boycotts of Israel. And, and there's a lot like this, there's actually one uh, that, that the United States Congress, I, I don't know where it is in the lawmaking process, that wanted to make it a felony to, to do, do BDS, which um, is insane to me, totally insane to me. <laughs> yeah, where you see a lot of this um, legislation aimed at is particularly student activism, um, like across college campuses. So that's really interesting to think about, too, is when, you know, sort of free speech activists are talking about how Nazis should be able to come and talk on, you know, at, to, to college kids or whatever the fuck. Um, but the, you know, you're the you know, pro-Palestine or, or BDS activists on student campuses are, um, you know, should be criminalized. Yeah. Do you think they're I mean, being disingenuous about the free speech stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can find nothing less surprising than that Andrew Cuomo supported an anti-BDS law on public universities. Um <laughs> I mean, that was a big, that was a big deal, is I think he actually went on the record when maybe it was Linda Sarsour, but it may have been uh, someone else, but was going to give a speech at like, I think Brooklyn College. And there was a huge sort of hue and cry to keep uh, that speaker from coming to campus, you know, in what seems like an insane, uh, you know, clearly obvious viewpoint discrimination, Um, you know. Uh, so yeah, I'm not surprised. I, I think one of the other places that this came up was in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Uh, people who were either, I don't remember if it was people who had property damage claims or people who were doing like, excuse me, doing emergency work, like repairs in the wake of Hurricane Harvey in Texas. Uh, some municipality instituted an anti-BDS thing as part of the as part of the claims processing and 
you know, people were like, I, you know, I just lost my house. Why do I have to sign this fucking piece of paper? And there was enough of a, a response that the whatever municipality it was rescinded the request that people sign uh, an anti-BDS certification. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's something that's happening a lot and it just it just seems so facially unconstitutional. I can't believe sort of how how popular and widespread it is. Hey, yo, there go that brother Grand Poobah. Heard that brother got knowledge. Yo, Drew and Jay, brother. Yo, let's have that brother come over and add on to the site. Uh, and so with the, with that we go to our last uh, we go to our last um, case of the day where we go uh, from like the sort of serious to the most ridiculous. This is this oh, was no, this is serious. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> this is uh, Kissner and Werner versus McDonald's, uh, which is a class action. About cheeseburgers. Sue, you're um, well, it's about it's about cheese, and it's about justice. Uh, <laughs> it's it's about it's about fighting for something and taking what little time you have on this planet and doing something good with it. The American dream. That's right. The specifically, uh, the claim is that uh, when you order at the drive-through. Or at the self-service kiosk at McDonald's, whether you order, you can't order a cheeseburger, uh, you can't order a hamburger, a quarter pounder. You can't order a quarter pounder or a double quarter pounder. You can only order a quarter pounder with cheese or a double quarter pounder with cheese and then hit the no cheese button for which no discount is offered. (laughs) And so they are suing as a class action for all of the undiscounted cheese Mm -hmm. on their cheeseburgers. this uh, and so that that is the claim. I want someone else to address the claim uh, before I give my hot take. I just want to highlight how much the words cheese, cheese they do not want is is <laughs> mentioned in um, this yeah. complaint. So p- people are forced to pay for two slices of cheese, which they do not want, order or receive. And that that <laughs> phrase, the cheese we do not want is repeated. I, I mean, just infinity. It times. Is, yeah, that, I mean, it should go on a bumper right. sticker. Yeah. Like the the placard to sandwich board. My, my take is this, this is exactly like the individual mandate uh, under Obamacare and is equally offensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter, you have a... Uh, I mean, I think that these, I don't really have a stance on the claim. Uh, it is brought, of course, under the Sherman Act which was the first thing I thought of when I realized yeah. you couldn't <laughs> yep. you couldn't just order a quarter pounder. Uh, I was like, this is yeah. this. There's got to be a federal statute 
I think it's offensive. I think it's offensive that you can only order a quarter pounder at McDonald's. They have occupied the field. Um, this must no, they, be it's anti-competitive. Tie- no, but they say it's a tying claim. That's right. But here, here is my here is my hot take. They actually they actually plead this very specifically. Yeah, they, they say do. that if you order if you order at the kiosk or at the drive through, your only option is to order it with cheese. <clears throat> And then hit the no cheese button, but then you still end up paying for the cheese. Whereas if you walk up to the counter or if you like order on Grubhub or something like that, Mm -hmm. there's a cheeseburger, there's a quarter pounder option or a quarter pounder with cheese. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the register and you say quarter pounder, it actually does cost less, Right. right? Like if you order at the counter, then the register has buttons for quarter pounder and quarter pounder with cheese. And so there actually is a price difference, but they've programmed their kiosks to be simpler for people to use is how McDonald's would say it. We've made it easy for you to say this and then no cheese because we have fewer buttons to press. But the result of that is effectively false advertising because you've limited people's options to the more expensive option, right? You could have programmed your kiosk to say quarter pounder and then made people pay a premium for cheese but then people would have to think about the premium. And so they instead program the computer to go the other way where you say you don't want the cheese and then they don't give you a discount. I don't think it's a completely not so claim. It's not, no, it's not, no, not so claim. How do they get around? I don't under, How do they get around? McDonald's could just take off the option for quarter pounder, no cheese. That's cheaper. I mean, how do they get around? If you order a quarter pounder with cheese, no ketchup, you don't get a discount for not getting ketchup, right? No, because, because they're saying they're selling they're selling two different products. Right, but how do they? Uh, but okay, but, but McDonald's could they, just they, remove that the the quarter. No, pounder. But, they, yeah, but they, they didn't. But they didn't. But they didn't. They have. If you go to the counter, right, right, you can friendly. buy a quarter pounder. <laughs> if you go to the counter, you can buy a quarter pounder at a quarter pounder price. If you go to the kiosk. The quarter pounder, which they advertise all over, is not available at the quarter pounder price. (laughs) And so, therefore, the kiosk tricks people into paying for the cheeseburger price. For unwanted and undelivered cheese, yes. Unwanted cheese. Correct. What they're saying is that the kiosk should give you the cheaper, like, both options. Instead of making you buy the expensive one. And then going back. And so they've brought it as a class action nationwide class. They've brought it as a Florida class. They brought it as an unjust enrichment claim with like a dozen states or a half dozen states. But they have given literally no reason why (laughs) the class applies to only those specific states. Like I, they don't list it. I mean, there must be America's hungriest state. (laughs) (laughs) Like there must be something specific to unjust enrichment law there. Like whatever the common law claim is in that those states, but they don't specify it. They just say the class consists of people in these particular states. No further comment, Your Honor. (laughs) Right. Did you guys Um, see the receipts that they attached to the complaint? So the funny. So a lot of the times in, in lawsuits like this, 
you would to prove your point and to attach something to the complaint, you would go in, you'd order a quarter pounder with cheese and then a quarter pounder without cheese. That way you could show that they're the same price on their on the receipt. But the receipts they attach have like other stuff too. So it's like there's a quarter pounder and it's like uh and also a six piece nugget and a vanilla shake. <laughs> Which I, I assume that means that they're just that they're that the lawyers were like, can you give me the receipts? But it might also mean that they went into McDonald's to try to get receipts to use as evidence. And then they were like, at the end, they were like, and um, and, they'll, and they'll do a large fry, too. You know, I think I'm going to throw that on. So they were like, play it cool. Act like you would, you know, just order like you would normally order. Like, don't don't be weird about yes. this. In that case, six vanilla shakes, please. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. No, but they do that. They do. They show that on the kiosks, if you order a quarter pounder with cheese and then take off the cheese, it costs the same as if you order a quarter pounder with cheese and don't take any other option. But if you go up to the counter and you just order a quarter pounder, uh, then it's cheaper. I think it's It's just it's. It's it's nice that McDonald's has more faith in the employees working the register than its customers working the kiosk, and so they made the system you know more simple on the kiosk than on the register. Yeah, especially when you think about how long they've taken to make the registers literally as simple as possible <laughs> for their employees. Like the entire corporate mission of McDonald's is to like allow their employee to recognize the difference between a burger and a nugget. <laughs> Um, and so I feel like we should explain, like, the, so I'm not, a, I'm not a pro on the Sherman Act. If someone is, please step in. But uh, tying claims are like, it's designed to prevent in, uh, companies that have a monopoly or, or something near a monopoly on an industry of tying other products uh, that you have to purchase with that. So if you have a monopoly on uh, tissues, then making people buy napkins at the same time could be a violation of the Sherman Act. This is this, this is pretty tenuous, right? I mean, is there any is there anything close to this in in the uh, in the case law? I, I don't know. Shocked. I mean, like, but like I said, McDonald's has a monopoly on the nationally advertised quarter pounder. <laughs> That's right. You cannot. You cannot get McDonald's products in anywhere but McDonald's. They have 100% of that market. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, I mean, I guess one of the, the, the mo- one of the most famous tying claims was the Microsoft case right. where, they, where they were accused of tying um, using their monopoly in the operating system market to bundle their browser, the, micro, the uh, Internet Explorer, uh, to dominate the browser market. Yeah. Um, and that was like, I think they were, Netscape, I think, was the first who complained, but that was just brought right. actually. And you also, when you, when you got Windows, you still had to pay for the cheese. That was, it was the same thing. <laughs> right. right. So the, this, the cheese the is cheese, Internet Explorer in this, in this analogy? <laughs> yes. No, no. It, you, literally, it was packaged with cheese. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a shrink wrap agreement and one slice of shrink wrapped American cheese. <laughs> Um, oh my god, that was a very that was a lawyer joke. No one, no one in the audience is, is laughing. That's, a, that's a, it's okay. That's okay. My intended audience uh, thought that was exactly as stupid as I did. Um, but uh, but yeah, they, I mean, uh, 
no one, no one has uh, yet said that cheese stands alone, <laughs> which forces, which forces me to just uh, put that in. Thank you for as the, the coda Charles. on this. Yeah. Um, Are they? So, they're asking uh, for damages, but if I were in their shoes, I would just be asking for the cheese. <laughs> no, that's no, they don't, don't want it. Cheese, goddamn! They wait, did not ask for wait, it, and they do not want it. They did ask for damages, <laughs> no, but they absolutely, the cheese, no, they I'm absolutely the, do I not. Just, I don't want damages. I want a mandatory injunction to deliver me the cheese. I want to. If I was the plaintiff's lawyer, I, I would say, "Look, you can walk out of here with money, or you can walk out of here with a closet full of cheese." It's up to you. I can you imagine the entire that's the first settlement offer and the like the, we'll the lawyer cheese. like pulling his hair out saying we never wanted the cheese. <laughs> now is when we want it least of all. I'm not taking 30% of a pile of cheese. We, that's not that's that's not why I'm doing this. We, we um, made it clear that we don't want the cheese. You insult us with this offer. <laughs> All right. Pack up your stuff. We're leaving. We're leaving, Cynthia. Um, all right. With that, I think that will uh, wrap up episode 15 of Mike Dicta. I'd like to thank the panel, uh, Peter and Rhiannon and John. Uh, I'd like to just sort of let everyone know about um, one that we have uh, now a bit of an association with Vice. We're going to have sort of a semi-regular column with them. My first one on uh, the Avenatti Prohoc Vice fight is already up. You can find that there. Uh, Peter, I think, has one uh, in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll see that coming soon, um, which will... Uh, a lot of people asked us if we were going to talk about Epic Systems, the arbitration case. I think that is going to come up in Peter's article. If not, we probably will cover it in a future episode. I also have something on Deadspin on the recent Supreme Court uh case allowing uh, state-sponsored gambling, uh, which is too boring to talk about out loud, uh, but you can certainly find that at Deadspin. Uh, but otherwise, thanks uh, for listening to episode 15 of Mike Dicta. I'm your host, Charles Starr. Good night, everybody. Bye. Good night. <laughs>